pray today that you'll be with us all here. You'll bless us all. Clear our minds, open our ears, and open our hearts so that we may receive the message that Patrick brings us. Let us all know and understand that you are the Lord, the King. You are everything to us. Go with us now. Have your will. Have your way. Forgive us of our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A few announcements. Uh, the Rising group meets today uh, for you visitors. That's a... We'll let Patrick announce that. So, uh, as many of you know, we have been starting uh, our, our children youth ministry a little bit differently. Uh, we're calling it Rising uh, because our, our students are the, both the rising generation and we also want them to be rising in their faith and growing in the faith as we teach them uh, the doctrines of Scripture and the truth of Scripture. So what we're doing for the next five Sundays, uh, Sunday evenings at from 5 to 6.30, starting tonight and going through the next five Sunday nights, our younger ones, so preschool through elementary school, will be looking at the events of John's Gospel and some of the other Gospel accounts, the events leading up to Easter over the next five weeks, and we will end on Easter Sunday. And so the high school students, middle school and high school students, will be beginning a process of catechism-like question and answers. But we'll take a question from either Westminster Catechism or the Heidelberg Catechism and look at them from a perspective that we can help our students, our, our youth, understand both doctrines of God and, and what Scripture teaches. So tonight with our high school students, we'll be talking about the first question from Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To enjoy God and glorify Him forever. So if you, that being said, if you are or have preschool for high school students, bring them tonight at 5 o'clock. We'll have a, a meal for them, a, a crack for our younger ones. We'll have discussion and just have, have some fun together teaching scripture and doctrine. If you are not or do not have any longer a preschool through high schooler, then let me invite you or encourage you to come anyway tonight. Uh, if you're an adult, we would love for you to consider helping us out uh, in our next session of five weeks that we'll have in May. Um, and so what, what that looks like is Jessica has, has prepared and provided a, a lesson runner of sorts for tonight's lesson. So if you come tonight, you can actually have a copy of her lesson plan and listen and see how she walks through it. And if you decide that you could help us out with a lesson plan, what if something similar will be given to you to go through and walk through so you have an idea of what that looks like. Otherwise, we also have, have needs for people to provide meals, for people to help lead crafts, and for people to help lead lessons. So if any of that applies, if you have any interest or curiosities about it, Come tonight, come any of the next five Sunday nights to just get a feel for what that would, would look like. Uh, there is a letter at the back in the, on the Narthex table for our, our rising, kind of the date for what these five weeks look like, just to give you some information. Take one of those with you, pass it to somebody who, who you think might be interested. If you have any questions, you can find Jeff, me, Michael, or, or Paige. We'd love to, to talk to you about it. Uh, while I'm here, one other announcement. Back here in our mailroom, I have finally kind of updated and moved our church library startup. Uh, you'll find a bookshelf in the mailroom with, with several resources there. On the top shelf of the bookshelf are CDs. Those are free. Take them, keep them, listen to them. They're sermons from Alistair Begg. Uh, you can have one, all of them, take them. Uh, the shelf underneath that are books. 
Uh, each one, each book is different. They're provided to us by Alcerbex Truth for Life Ministry. Uh, there's a sign-out sheet. Just let us know what book you have and, and when you took it so we can kind of keep track of what books go where. At the bottom shelf are stacks of books that we've done previously in our small groups. Those are free, and you can take them and keep them. Uh, so if you have any questions, let me know. But check it out before you leave today. Thank you, Pastor. Choir practice this week at 7. Uh, growth groups, 6.30 at the Parsonage. And Jessica has a... So Saturday, next Saturday, March 11th, is our women's dinner and auction. We are in need of dessert. We only have five people signed up right now. I know somebody said that we have one other person, but I'll say six right now. We need dessert. If you can make a dessert for us, I don't care if it's a cake. I don't care if it's brownies or pie, whatever you want to make. You'll bring it to the um, fellowship hall by 12 o'clock next Saturday. We're going to be up there prepping and, and cooking and all that good stuff. We're starting at 4.30 dinner, and then we'll go to 6.30, and then we'll have our auction afterwards. If you have, ladies, if you've not signed up for a job, there's a sign-up sheet in the Narthex, and there's also a sign-up sheet for the dessert, too, in the Narthex on the table back there. Please sign up, um, or if you just want to show up and help, that's fine, too. Um, we'll be up there around 1 o'clock on Saturday. Also, I have a letter here from Mount Pleasant United Methodist Church. Uh, last year, it's a rise against hunger. Uh, we let the church participate with individual groups. Uh, we participate, donate money to them to help pack meals this summer for kids and backpacks and all that. I'll just post it on the bulletin board back here. You can get the information. If your group wants to participate, it'll tell how to make the check out and where to send it. Also in there, there's an update about the historical marker that has been placed on Highway 49 uh, since our church name has changed, since we changed affiliations. Uh, thanks to Bonnie Moose for her long, hard, dedicated work to make that happen. Uh, my understanding, about 90% of the people that apply to have that done didn't get it done. So we're, we're fortunate, and a lot of that's due to the hard work of Bonnie. So thank you, Bonnie, for all that. Also, on the back of the bulletin, I'll hurry up and get done. There's a, a note about the blessing box. Contribute to that. So please take time to read that. Any other announcements? If not, I'm going to read from Psalms. I'm going to read Psalm 12. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful has vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all their flattering lips, the tongues that make great boast. And those who say, without the tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are among us who is master over us. Because the poor plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The word of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from the generation forever. On every side of the wicked proud, a veilness is exalted among the children of man. Here in the reading of God's Word. Let us stand and sing our first hymn, hymn number.
61, there is a wilderness in God's mercy. Church, what do we believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into heaven. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. Sit upon the right hand of the Father Almighty. From thence you shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Thank you. 
Actually, technically, it's Hudson's. I know. <laughs> Hudson supplied our visual aid this morning. We thank him for that very much. Oh, I'm going to stop touching it. I'm really sorry. I'll just be loud. God uses to 
think he wants to? Do you think it's better? You think he wants to? I don't think that he does because he can do more cool things as a robot. He can walk around, pick stuff up, throw things, you know, he throws stuff in your truck. Turn into a truck. Turn into a truck. But the issue is that when God transforms us by his grace, he changes us. He changes. We're still us, but he changes us. And he changes the way that we work. He changes the way that our hearts work. He changes the way that we think. And it, and it makes us, especially over time, this will be a long process. It's not just like flipping on a switch, right? But over time, it helps us want to do the right thing, to not sin, to live in a way that reflects how good God is, right? And, and not how much fun we might have used to think that sin was. Does that make sense? Yes. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> <laughs> Can we pray? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul who faithfully explained all of these very hard things to us. Thank you for your grace and thank you for the way that it changes us. Thank you for changing us. We love you. Help our hearts and our minds be ready to hear more about your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. And I'll be in nursery with any little people who need to come down. There is one announcement I forgot for those visiting. Probably, I don't know if you've ever been to a church or not, and the offering plate not get passed. We quit doing that when the COVID pandemic hit. We don't pass the plate, but we still have the plate sitting on the table back in the narthex. So if you'd like to leave an offering, please feel free to do so. It will get appropriate. Let's all stand now and sing our hymn 483, Take Time to Be Holy.
If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. If you do not have a Bible with you, uh, and do not have an app on a device that has the Bible, uh, you are welcome to grab one of the blue ones on the end of your pews and read those. Grab one of those and use those for us as we study God's Word this morning. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, let me first say welcome. I'm glad to have you here with us. Uh, we have been slowly working our way through the gospel, through the gospel, through the letter of Romans uh, since July, and here we are in, in chapter six, just progressing as slowly and as deeply as we can through this great letter that Paul has written. Uh, this morning we, we find ourselves here at the end of, of chapter six, looking at verses fifteen through twenty-three. I will read them for us, and then we will seek God's help as we pray together. Look with me at Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. Paul says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we come and we pray that you would help us. Help us. Help us to understand your word. Teach us, mold us, shape us, transform us. Lead us in the way everlasting. Speak through me, Father. May your word go forth and bear fruit and not return void or empty. And it's trusting in this promise that your word does just that. That we pray and that we hope and that we cling to. Be glorified in the preaching and the teaching and the hearing and receiving and the believing of your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm, I'm thankful for the, the choir singing the song that they sang this morning because... As, as we know, we're familiar with the song, and we, we sing about it quite a bit. We, we believe deeply that grace is amazing. That's a good thing. Grace is amazing, and we should sing about it. We should talk about it. We should think about it and encourage each other with it. We should Grace should be the, the filter through which all of our words and our thoughts flow. Because grace is everything to us, and without grace, we really have nothing. 
But with that, I, I feel that we sometimes misunderstand just what grace does and how far grace reaches in our lives. Yes, grace forgives us of our sin, and grace liberates us from sin's power, which is what Paul has been iterating in, in chapter 6. And what we've seen in the first 14 verses of this chapter is that grace frees us from sin. Grace overcomes sin, so that we are not left in it. But it also does more than just free us. Grace does more than just break chains. Grace transforms those chain wearers. See, it's not enough to have just a grace that saves us. It's not enough to have a grace that, that saves us from our sin if that same grace doesn't transform us to stop sinning. Or to put it another way, the grace that does not transform you is a grace that does not save you. And what I want to do with you this morning as we walk our way through this, this passage, as we study God's Word together, I really want to focus your attention on the transforming power of grace. Because the reality is that we need transformation. We need to be changed radically and completely. And the only way this happens is by grace. And the glory of the gospel is that God does not leave us where we are when he saves us. He does not break the chains of the captive and then say, best of luck, I'll hope to see you later. But by his grace, he transforms us, changes us, renews us, makes us different. And transformation, as you will see from Paul's writing, is transformation is God's work done by God's grace for God's people. So let me, let me lay out a, a map for you, kind of where we're headed this morning in this passage, just so you can have an idea so that we're all on the same page. So first, I, I want to show you, I want to show you from Paul's writing why transformation matters to the Christian, why it should matter to you. I, I want you to see the, the illustration that Paul gives so that we can understand this process a little bit deeper. And then I want to show you how transformation happens. What is it that brings transformation on in the life of the Christian? And what is the means of this sanctifying power that God gives us in His grace. Finally, I want you to see what transformation looks like. Practically, physically, spiritually. If we don't know what transformation looks like, then how can we know if it's happening to us? So that's the map. Why transformation matters, how transformation happens, and what transformation looks like. So let's begin. Why transformation matters. You'll notice in the first few verses of this passage that Paul begins this, or continues rather, this example and this illustration of slavery. And it's an illustration that Paul uses quite often in terms of Christian obedience and holiness as well as the sinfulness of mankind, that we are slaves of something. And it's interesting, I think we have to be on the same page as we begin, that there is no neutral standing here. Everyone is a servant, everyone is a slave of something. And in Paul's terms here in Romans 6, you are either a slave of sin or a slave of God. And there is no middle ground. Now this illustration that, that Paul gives is, is just that. It's an illustration. It's an analogy. And when it comes to difficult doctrine and difficult things of Scripture, analogies are helpful. And I, I love Paul's caveat there in verse 19. Where he kind of explains why he's doing it 
says, I'm speaking in human terms due to your natural limitations. Which is Paul's nice way of saying, this is really difficult, and you're kind of not quite there yet, so let me help you out along the way. This is not an arrogance of Paul. This is not him being boastful in his intellect or holding his own knowledge and understanding of this over the Romans, but this is a kind, gentle, pastoral way of saying, here, let me help you with this. See, Paul knows this is a difficult concept to grasp, the the idea that, that I was enslaved to sin, that sin was my master. But now Christ is my master, and I'm now a slave of God. This doesn't sound too appealing to us, to be a slave. It's hard to grasp. And Paul knows it. So he uses this illustration for us to help, to help the Romans, to help us really understand it more clearly. And so what is it that Paul wants us to see about transforming grace and why it, makes, why it matters and, and what makes it so difficult that he has to use this illustration to help us understand it? See, what Paul has said so far, what he's been working through, going all the way back to chapter 5 and through chapter 6, is that in Adam, we sinned. That we sinned with Adam and therefore became slaves to sin, obedient to death, enemies of God. But then in Christ, Christ has come and his death has atoned for our sins. Our old selves died and we are now free from sin slavery. We are no longer what we once were. Paul doesn't stop here. He, he continues sort of fleshing out this slavery image as he moves away from our justification into our sanctification. Justification is what happens when we first believe. It happens once, and then it's sufficient for all eternity. That when we place faith in Christ, that very first time that our faith is placed in Christ, God looks at us and declares us righteous, and we are justified on the spot for all eternity. God says, you, because of Christ and because of your faith in Christ, you are righteous. For now, from now on and forevermore, you are righteous because of Christ. That's justification. But sanctification is what happens after that moment of justification. Sanctification is not a a one-time-for-all-time thing. Sanctification is this lifelong process where God works in us to make us worthy of the justification He's already given us. Or to put it another way, when you are justified, God says you are righteous, even if you're not righteous. But you are righteous because Christ is righteous for you. And then for the rest of your life here on earth, God is working by His Spirit and by His grace to make you righteous as He has declared you righteous. And it is this sanctification, it is this process of transformation that Paul has in view in Romans 6. And so putting behind what we once were, becoming more like Christ every day, becoming righteous as we have been declared righteous. So to capture this transforming sanctification, Paul comes back to slavery, something the Romans would have been very familiar with. It was very common for lower and sometimes even middle class Romans and Greeks to submit themselves voluntarily, willingly, into a form of slavery. And there are a host of, of reasons for this. It could have been financial, where bills just couldn't be paid on time and debt was accumulating and so to help cover the money owed I would enter into slavery with my lien holder okay I'll work it off I don't have the money to pay you back but I will work for you and pay off my debt to you 
And I will be your servant. I will be your slave until my debt is paid. So it could have been financial. It could have been uh, a home. I don't have anywhere to live. And so if you'll let me come stay at your house, I'll serve you. Night and day. All of these various reasons accounted for the fact that Romans were very in tune with this idea of slavery. Paul says, do you not know? He begins verse, verse 16 with this do you not know passage. It's assumed knowledge. Don't you know that if you submit yourself in obedience to someone, you become a slave of that person? Don't you know this? That whatever you're obeying, that essentially is, has become your master. And so the primary issue that Paul's getting at with this idea and this image of slavery is you can't serve two masters. Jesus said it himself in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul says it here. You cannot serve two masters. For you will love one and hate the other, or you will love one and hate the other. You will love sin and you will serve sin, which leads to death. Or you will love obedience and you will love God and you will serve Him. And this leads to life, to righteousness. And again, there's no third option here. And there's no right in the middle. It is either A or B and not both and not neither. You may be thinking, if you've been with us over the last month of February, you may be thinking, I thought we already covered this, Paul. I thought we already fixed this issue of slavery when we became Christians. Didn't Paul already say that Christians have been set free from slavery? So why are we still talking about it? But you see, slavery is both a legal standing and a living experience. The legal standing has been dealt with. Paul says, in Christ, you are free from slavery. You are no longer a slave. That legal standing has been dealt with, it has been fixed, it is resolved. Done. Because of faith in Christ, and because of what Christ has done, you are not a slave to sin any longer. However, there is the living experience that takes some time for us to get used to. Consider, consider those that spend a lot of time behind bars, for example. Incarceration is growing. We, we don't have slavery anymore, but we do have incarceration. We have inmates. We have prisoners. What happens when you take someone who's been in jail for a very, very, very long time and put them back on the street, free them, as it were? I mean, the world has changed since they've experienced it. There's new technologies. There's new social practices, social norms. There's new people in their lives that they've never met before. Everything and everyone has moved on without them. And they have a host of challenges trying to reintegrate into society. The job market is different. It requires new skills and training, which they likely don't have. Family members have grown up, moved on, and done so without them. Not to mention the fact that everywhere they go, they are marked as a former convict, and nothing they do can remove that label from them. So you have family stress and mental health issues and job insecurity and and countless other issues all facing them. Is it any wonder that two out of every three released inmates go back to jail within three years? Two out of every three. When you stretch that window to five years, it jumps to almost 80%. And could it be, uh, this this isn't a a social reform message, I wouldn't even know where to begin with this. 
But could it be that people who are so accustomed to being enslaved don't know what living free looks like? When someone who has been enslaved for so long finally breaks free, is finally set free and out the doors, chains are broken, bars are removed, what if they don't know how to live in that freedom? And so they simply return to the slavery that they do know. They simply return to the prison cells that have become home to them. See, I, I think this is what happens to Christians all the time. You and I, we've been slaves to sin our entire life. And by God's grace, He frees us from it. He calls you to come and serve Him, to be His servant, to be His slave, a slave to righteousness. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how to do that. So I just do what I know how to do. And I return to my old ways. And I go back to serving my old master. And I do the things that I'm comfortable with because that's what I know how to do. Paul says it very clearly here in Romans 6. Christian, you can't do that. Because don't you know that if you subject yourself, if you obey a master, you become a slave to that master. And if you continue to present yourselves to sin, meaning you are habitually walking and unrepentant in this sin, then by your living this way, you are proclaiming by your life, sin is my master, not Christ. You can't serve Christ. You can't claim Christ to be your king while offering your life in service to his enemy. Loved ones, I need you to understand this. I need to understand this. Sin is not a pet. It is not a toy. It is not something that we control and bring out whenever we get bored. We don't control sin. Sin controls us. It is a master that seeks to rule us, and the more you offer yourself to it, the greater its grip becomes. Stop sinning. Leave the life of slavery behind you because you are freed in Christ. Be transformed by His grace. This is why transformation matters. This is why it's a must. Because whom you serve matters. Now how does this happen? How does transformation happen? We see this in verses 17 and 18. This is what Paul says. He says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Let me, let me just point out a couple of things here. First, transformation is God's work, not yours and not mine. Do you notice that the passive tense of these verbs, we have been set free, we have been committed, these things happen to us, not through us or for us or by us. They happen to us. God is the one passing us over from one master to the next. God is the one setting us free. We are not the actors here. We are the recipients. And by receiving God's work, we are transformed. It's His work. The second thing to point out, transformation begins at conversion. You'll notice Paul says at the end of verse 17, this, this phrase, to which you were committed. This could be translated, it might be translated, if you have a different translation in your lap, as, as handed over, to which you were handed over. This is a transfer language. 
that you were here and God has picked you up and he has handed you and put you over here, like a baton being passed between runners in a race. This is what happens when we first believe. God takes us out of the power of sin, away from the kingdom of darkness, and transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son, into the kingdom of light. We are handed over, we are committed on that day. And our transformation begins then. But really, this still hasn't answered the question, how does transformation happen? And to answer that, we look at the middle of verse 17. Transformation comes and is done by the Word of God. See, Paul, Paul doesn't just say that we've been handed over generally. He says specifically what we've been handed over to. You have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed or handed over. It's that standard of teaching that Paul refers to here. This is the Word of God. It is the Scripture. It is the Gospel, the doctrine that we get from this book. See, it is through the Scriptures that you first learn of the Gospel of Jesus. It is through the Scriptures that you are transformed. And nothing else matters for your salvation and for your sanctification like the Scriptures do. Nothing. But don't take my word for it. Turn to the Scriptures. See it for yourself. Because this is, the, this is the thread that runs throughout both the Old and New Testament. You could go back to Ezra and Nehemiah's day. Where the people of Israel have been redeemed and rescued from exile. They've spent decades in a foreign land. In slavery. And are finally back home. They've rebuilt the city. They've rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the walls. And what's the very next thing the people say? They turn to Ezra the priest and say, bring out the book. We want the book. Because this book will teach us how to live. This book will teach us how to obey. This book will help us see what we've done wrong and teach us repentance. We want the book, Ezra. Bring us the book. And so Ezra does. And he stands up on a platform and he reads from the book for six straight hours. And immediately following, the people read and they hear and they receive the word and the teaching and they worship. And they weep and they mourn over their sin and they praise the God of His grace. Maybe consider, fast forward a few, a few years. Go to the ministry of Paul or the ministry of the church in Acts. How is it that Paul plants so many churches? How is it that the churches are strengthened? How do they grow? By the word of God. By the word of God alone. You could go to Acts 6 where trouble springs up in the church. A trouble that has the threat and the possibility of tearing the church apart between Greeks and Jews. So they bring the issue to the apostles, to the church leaders. And they say, look, here, you guys help us here. The church is, is about to tear apart. What are we supposed to do? And Peter says, here, here are seven men who can help you with this. I need to keep my focus on the preaching of the word. Do you, do you see what, what Peter places the emphasis on in the Acts 6? The church is at the point of breaking in two and Peter says, I can't let go of the word. Because the word matters this much. Someone else needs to deal with this issue. And then you get into Acts 20, where Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders and saying that he taught them the entire counsel of God for three years every day. Or you could go to Ephesians 4, where Paul writes that Christ has given the church its leaders. 
It's apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, all of which have a teaching ministry and a teaching role within the church. Paul says, they have been given to the church so that they could do one thing, teach. Teach the Word of God so that the church can be built up and encouraged and strengthened, edified. How is it the church does, how is it this happens? Because the Word of God is taught. Consider, why is it why is it that in all the qualifications for church leaders, for elders, there is only one requirement for their ability, for their skill, what they must be able to do? Teach. As an elder, you have to be able to teach. Because that's the only thing that matters in terms of building up the church and leading the church and showing the church what the gospel does and what transformation does. You read through any of the letters to the churches in the New Testament, and what is the number one threat that the church faces? False teaching. Over and over and over again, there are false teachers, there are threats who are coming in and undercutting the teaching of Scripture. Because nothing will endanger God's people more than false teaching. Because false teaching will stop transformation in its tracks. It will stop growth. It will encourage sin, and it will lead that church to destruction. The very last piece of advice that Paul gives his young protege, Timothy, as a a young pastor of the church in Ephesus, the very last command, the very last encouragement he gives him in 2 Timothy, the end of 3 and into chapter 4, he says, Timothy, there's going to be a time when people don't want to hear the word of God. And they're going to have itching ears. And they're going to want, to want you to tell them all these specific things and talk about these endless myths and genealogies and get into all these endless debates. But you, Timothy, need to remember that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for correction and for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness, that the people of God may be competent, may be complete, may be perfect, equipped for every good work. none of this proves to you that transformation comes by the word of God and by the word of God alone, then hear the very words of Jesus in John 17. In that passage, John, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is praying for his disciples. He is bringing their names before the Father, saying, Father, keep them because of what's about to come. And the beautiful thing about John 17 is that he doesn't just pray for those 11 men who were with him that night. But he prays very specifically, he says, also for those who will believe in me through their word. Guess what, church? That's you. In John 17, Jesus prays for you. What does he pray for you? John 17, verse 17. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word. You want to know how to be transformed? You want to know how to change? How to get away from sin? How to have your heart changed? How to have your life changed? Read God's Word. That's it. There's no 10-step program to changing your life. There's no how-to books on conquering sin. It is this simple and this beautiful because God's Word is that powerful. 
may say, but it's too much. It's too big. I don't understand it. It's too hard. It's confusing. And you're right. It is. But that's what elders are for. To teach you, to train you, to show you how to read this book. It really is this simple, church. You want your life to change? Then read God's Word. You want to be able to stop sinning and break all these bad habits? Read God's Word. You want to see the church grow? Make God's Word the priority beyond just Sunday morning. You want to be transformed? Read God's Word. The same Word that saves you promises to transform you. That is how transformation happens. But lastly, let me show you quickly what transformation looks like. So we've seen why it matters. It matters because of slavery and who we serve. We've seen how it happens by reading God's Word. But what does it look like? Or put it another way, how can I know when it's happening to me? Or maybe more importantly, how can I know when it's not? So let me just give you three three changes that take place from Paul's, Paul's writing here. Three changes that take place to show you what transformation looks like. First, is a change of direction. A change of direction. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, Paul says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So it works like this. Think think back to your days B.C., before Christ. Now, those days may fill decades of your life, or they may be so few that it's hard to remember what they look like at all. Either way, those days are there. And at one point in your life, you chase after sin. And I don't mean a light jog or a brisk walk sort of chase. I mean someone is chasing you. There's an angry pack of dogs on your heels running towards sin. You ran. And you couldn't get enough of it. Because sin is like Lay's potato chips and you can't eat just one. Like you need more of it and you kept chasing more of them. The more you had, the more you wanted, and the more you wanted, the worse it got. Which is what Paul says. Impurity and lawlessness led to more lawlessness. Your sins may have been physical in nature, where you had an unending appetite for something wrong. They may have been internal, pride, self-righteousness, or something of the sort. But you sinned. And your life was marked by sin. And you kept sinning. And you grew in that sin. But notice the transition words that Paul uses in the verse. He says, just as, so now. So so follow me here. Paul, Paul says, just as you once chased after sin, full speed, down the hill, running as fast as you can, just as you ran that hard and that quickly after sin, so now... Run after righteousness. See, the object of your devotion is different, but the momentum and the speed and the chasing are the same. You've just switched directions. That's what Paul is saying. In the same manner, just as, so now. You see, transformation looks like someone chasing after righteousness with the same passion and the same energy and the same devotion that they once chased after sin. See, too often, we don't see it this way. See, we see sin as running downhill. 
We pick up speed. We just keep going. The legs just keep churning one after another after another. And we can't stop. It's hard to stop and turn the other way. And then we see chasing righteousness as trying to run back up that hill. And slow going. It's hard. It's a struggle. You've got to take frequent breaks. Maybe you slip and slide back a little bit. That's not what Paul, that's not what Paul is getting at. Is running after righteousness difficult? Yes. But why is it difficult? Because we love our sin. We love chasing after it. But when you run after righteousness, it builds momentum in just the same way as if you were running after sin. So that as you start going, it might be difficult to get those legs moving one in front of the other. But as you keep going, that momentum builds and Holy living continues to build up in your life so that you just continue chasing after more and more and more of it. You might have hills to run up, but eventually you're going to get fast enough. You're going to be moving enough that stopping that run will be more difficult than continuing. Sinful living leads to more sinful living, and holy living leads to more holy living. So we run with the same passion. We run with the same devotion that you once chased after sin. We just do it in a different direction now. We chase after righteousness. Because that's what transformation looks like. Second change is a change of desire. Verse 20 and 21. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? Paul, again here, is pointing back for you to consider your B.C. days, before Christ days. And he says, back then, you used to be free. And you can almost see the air quotes around it. You used to be free in regards to righteousness. That the matters of doing what was right mattered little to you. And really, you weren't able to do what was right. So righteousness was never really your concern back then. You didn't care. And if you did care, it wouldn't have mattered because you couldn't have done it anyway. You were free from it. Paul says, in that freedom, consider the fruit, consider the results, consider the things that you received from all of that, those reckless living that you did. The sins that you were, that, that you were lost in. Consider all of the, the fruit that you got from those days. This is something interesting. He says, what, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? It's that, that last part of that verse, of which you are now ashamed, that stands out to me. Because in the next verse, he points out the fruit that you're getting now as you serve God. And it's this comparison of fruit that we see what transformation really looks like. You see, when we are transformed by God's word, our taste buds change, so to speak. What once used to take like, taste like freedom and satisfaction now tastes like shame. See, our old sins don't quite scratch that itch the way they used to because the itch has moved. And those desires have changed. You see, in transformation, you should be able to look back at your past and, and yes, feel a sense of shame over it. And when you think about doing what you want to do, just kind of get a, a bitter taste in your mouth. did nothing for me, and I don't want it. I used to. I used to love having it. When I think about it now, it just doesn't taste the same. 
to these desires and transformation change from loving and desiring sin to loving and desiring righteousness. Let me just ask here. If you don't look at your past in shame, if you spend more time longing to be back then, those days when you did what you wanted and when you wanted and how you wanted, then, then let me just press <coughs> upon you here for a moment to consider whether or not your desires have truly changed. Because transformation looks like a change of desires. We don't love what we used to love. We don't want what we used to want. We don't enjoy what we used to enjoy. Not fully. Not completely, not in the same manner. And if you can't tell a noticeable difference in desire or direction, then maybe you need to press more deeply into God's Word and really see if this transformation is taking place. Because transformation looks like a change of desire. That's what it does. Lastly, change of destiny. Hit this one quickly. We see it in verse 22 and 23. Paul says, For the end of those things is death, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, the first two changes, change of direction, change of desire, those take place over the course of a long period of time. We see them. They're not an overnight thing. They they happen over time. But this change is different. This change is an ultimate change. This change is an end change. You see, those lost in sin spend little time thinking about where those sins will be. All that matters is the here and now, and what comes tomorrow, well, I'll deal with that tomorrow. But the transformed life considers where the past ends. And the end of those past simple deeds, those paths lead to death. But the end of the path of serving God, Paul says, is eternal life. And I'm sure, I'm sure many of us are familiar with the last verse of this passage. If you grew up in Sunday school or grew up at going to vacation Bible school, you were likely taught Romans 6.23 in nearly every evangelistic seminar class lesson there ever was. Because in this light, Romans 6.23 holds up two options to a non-believer. You can stay in your sin and have the wages of death, or you can come to God and have grace and have eternal life through Jesus Christ. And that's true. These three things are true. But when you see Romans 6.23 in the context that it was written in, it's not an evangelistic verse at all. Paul's not writing this to call on pagans and to call on non-believers to come to Jesus and choose life instead of death. What he's doing is reminding and encouraging Christians. When you are tempted in sin, when those evil and shameful things come back, and you consider even for a moment to maybe just one time to partake like you want to, or or maybe just one time to indulge this, this feeling just once, Remember, the wages of sin is death. That path is going to lead you down this road, and it's going to end in death. The 
gift, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't forget it, believer. It's not evangelistic in nature, it's encouragement, reminder. You see, the transformed life considers where this path will end. Will it end in death or will it end in life? As we land the plane here this morning, let me just let me just remind you where we where we've come. Transformation matters a great deal in the life of the Christian. You are not sin slave any longer, and you need to live free. Do not continue serving your old master because you can only serve one. And you will either serve God or you will serve sin and you cannot serve both. Transformation comes through the word of God. If you want to be changed, if you desire transformation, it is found in this book and in this book alone. Read it. Study it. Know it. Transformation is a process. You will experience a change of direction and a change of desire, and you will see a change of destiny down the road. But be patient. It does not happen in me. But there will, I assure you, by God's grace, there will be a time in your life when you will look back over your shoulder and you will say, wow, look how far I've come so far. Look how far God has brought me. I can't believe I used to enjoy those things. Look, look at what God has done. Look at how God has transformed me. Christian, you are free from sin, and you are a slave of righteousness here and now. You have been transformed by His grace. Live like it. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for Your Word. Transform us by your word. Teach us grace. Teach us repentance. Teach us redemption. Teach us transformation. And I pray that you would give us a change of direction and a change of desire and a change of destiny. By your grace, we would be transformed. Be glorified in the changing and transforming of your people. In Christ's name we pray. Every week, as we respond to the preaching of God's word here this week, uh, we do so by taking communion. Uh, if you need the elements, run us at the back. If you'll just raise your hand, he will bring it to you. Uh, but let me just give you a quick word of instruction here as we as we come to the table. First and most importantly, this table is for believers. You may or may not be a member of this church, but that doesn't matter in terms of the table here this morning. What matters? right now is whether or not you are a believer. Whether you have placed faith in Christ for salvation. And if you have placed faith, if you are a Christian, then you are welcome at this table. Not not because I have said so, but because Christ has brought you to this table himself. And I am not going to be the one to stand in the way of keeping his people from his table. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, maybe you're trying to think of the last time you've noticed transformation in your life and you just can't find it. It's okay to put this down in the pew in front of you and not take it. And to actually consider first who your master is. 
Whom are you serving? Are you serving sin or are you serving God? And if sin is your master, then this is not for you. Put it down and be transformed. And then come back and take it again with us next week. Christian. See, one of the things I love about taking the table every week is that every week it just it speaks a little bit differently as we study God's Word together. And this week, as I was considering the taking the communion with you, I couldn't help but see in these elements transformation. See, as we come to this bread, and by no means does this transform into the physical body of Christ, but as we come, we are reminded that we have been transformed. Because his body was broken. And because he died in our place, we are now different. We have been changed. And as you take this bread, be reminded of your transformation and where it all began. The body of Christ broken for you. Paul encourages the Philippian church. He says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What that means, church, is that when God begins transforming you, God doesn't stop until the work is done. And when we take this cup with our king new in his kingdom, the work will be done. And you will be changed completely and forevermore and will never look back again. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, to the King. We have one final hymn to sing together. It's an appropriate hymn in light of God's Word. It is hymn number 353, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. Will you stand and sing with me?
commission allowed as the church. If you're visiting or need a copy, it is printed in the bulletin for you. Uh, we say this together as our benediction because as you leave these buildings, you are going with a task, with a commission from the king. This is what we are called to do, is to go and make disciples. To tell those that are trapped in slavery, the chains have been broken. And to encourage those whose chains have been broken to stop returning to them. So church, say the Great Commission aloud with me this morning. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go in grace. Amen.